This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ilyasa Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, describes how she turned her father's childhood years into X, a novel. Then PW President George Slowick discusses PW's efforts to support free speech following the attack on the French satire magazine Charlie Hebdo. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So there's a new number one in nonfiction after uh, several weeks. Yeah. Tell us about it. I think all of the books, uh, the new books on our list, are going to be health-related and not surprising. We only have four on the top 30, uh, four debuts. But at number one is the 2020 Diet, Turn Your Weight Loss Vision into Reality by Philip C. McGraw. He gives seven reasons uh, other diets fail people over and over again, which are hunger cravings, feelings of restriction, impracticality, and expense. He also lists boredom, temptations, and disappointing results. This book is number one on our list, uh, debuting. Dr. Phil can always top the charts. That's, yeah, Dr. F- yeah, exactly. That's, that's that what Dr. he does. Dr. Phil, exactly. So the next one is down at number 19? Yes, exactly. And this is not a self-help book, but it's called America's Bitter Pill, Money, Politics, Backroom Deals, and the Fight to Fix Our Broken Health Care System, though it has a little bit to do with health, and that is our system. Uh, this is uh, by Stephen Brill, and he talks about aff- the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, uh, how it's written, how it's being implemented. And that is at number 19 on our list. And uh, 21, next one, uh, New Health Rules, Simple Changes to Achieve Whole Body Wellness. This is by Frank Lippman and Danielle Claro. Frank Lippman is the leading expert in the field of functional medicine, according to the book's bio. And here he talks about exactly that, how to change your whole body, not just the diet, but how to change the health of your body. Uh, So that's at number 21. Finally, number 23 is more of a memoir, uh, but it is about weight loss. It's by Andy Mitchell. It's called It Was Me All Along. And here she shares uh, her story of weight loss from 300 pounds to losing more than half her size and how she became healthy and confident and with her relationship with food. And that's what we have on our nonfiction list. All right. Well, it sounds like the uh, post-New Year's trend is continuing. Sure. Yep. Um, Over in fiction, we have a new number three. That's Insatiable Appetites by Stuart Woods. Uh, This is, you know, as as usual on the fiction list, it's a a thriller. Um, We tend to have a lot of those Mm -hmm. hitting the top of the bestseller list. This is his 32nd novel featuring uh, the high-powered New York City attorney Stone Barrington. Um, Woods is unusual usual in that I don't see any co-authors credited here. He appears to still be writing his own books, 32 Mm. books in. So that's pretty impressive. Um, And uh, our review says that with such a long-running series, the huge backstory could be overwhelming, but Woods does manage to ensure that new readers won't get lost. 
So uh, there, there, this really is one that you can pick up even if you haven't read the previous 31. Uh, a little bit uh, further down the list at number four, we have The Third Target by Joel C. Rosenberg. Uh, Rosenberg is an interesting character. He writes these global thrillers, um, a lot of which are about radical Islam and conflicts between uh, that perspective and the West. Uh, he also includes a lot of Christian gospel messages in his books. So uh, a very clear perspective and a very clear target audience here. Uh, our review says that Rosenberg's writing skills are impeccable, yet some Christian readers may wonder whether the grisly violence he depicts and the xenophobia it stokes contradict some of those gospel messages that he wow. includes in the book. Interesting. Uh, but regardless, he's certainly very popular, and sure. that's at number four. Uh, down at number seven, we have As Chimney Sweepers Come to Dust by Alan Bradley. Uh, this is his seventh uh, whodunit in the Flavia de Luce series. And uh, we gave this a starred review. So we said it's exceptional. Uh, she is a, a preteen with an interest in poisons. And she goes from her family home in uh, England to Canada, where she is to attend a female academy. Mm. Um, but three girls disappear. There's suddenly a, a mummified corpse in a chimney. Um, lots of exciting things happen. And these uh, uh, novels take place in the uh, 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. So uh, a good bit of historical flavor as well. Sure. And that's an interesting time period. You don't see a lot of books set then. It seems to be sort of too near for the historical fiction writers and too right. far for the contemporary right. authors. Sure. It, uh, but, you know, 1951 is... Uh, Getting to be actually quite a while ago. You're <laughs> so, absolutely right. Um, yep. Fair, fair game for historical authors. So we say that the intriguing setup only gets better, and Bradley makes Miss Bodycoats a suitably gothic setting for Flavia's sleuthing. And her morbid narrative voice continues to charm. She says things like, "If you're anything like me, you adore rot." <laughs> oh wow! So um, that's on our list at number seven. Uh, number eight is Trust No One by Jane Ann Krentz. Uh, we say she's always reliable. And uh, in this thriller, which is a, a romantic thriller, uh, has a solid romance plot, uh, and as well as the, the thriller plot, um, Grace Elland uh, is working for a motivational guru uh, who doesn't turn up for work one day. And uh, she heads to his home and discovers his apparent suicide. Uh, this brings back memories of a time when she was 16 and a murderer trapped her in a basement with his wife's corpse. Oof. Now, I can tell you, I edited this review, and it was a real struggle trying to figure out how to how to summarize this plot sure. and, and all of the people in it in a couple of clear sentences. Uh, so, uh, Especially without spoiling. Especially without spoiling, um, which we do try to do in these right. thriller stories. Uh, fortunately, she's got the help of a, a successful businessman who's eager to assist her any way he can, seduce her, fix her career, and even help her investigate uh, the, her boss's mysterious death. How very helpful. Yes, the, in the fine tradition of romantic heroes. <laughs> so we say two appealing protagonists, one mysterious enemy, and a twisty plot provide all the necessary ingredients for a satisfying story. And then finally, at number nine, uh, we have Glenn Beck's new novel, Agenda 21, Into the Shadows, another thriller. Um, and an interesting thing I noted about these three newcomers at spots seven, eight, and nine is that their sales numbers are very, very similar. Uh, so as chimney sweepers come to dust, 6,500 uh, copies sold. The Jane Ann Krentz novel, 6,400 copies sold. Glenn Beck, 6,200 mm-hmm. copies sold. So um, in- interesting to see uh, how just one or two 
copies here or there can make a difference. Right. Yeah, sure. So uh, that's what's on our list uh, for this week. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ilyasa Shabazz tells us about truth and fiction in her novel about Malcolm X. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel Jose Older, author of Half Resurrection Blues, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Ilyasa Shabazz on the line. Her new book is X, a novel. Hi, Ilyasa. So glad you could join us. Thank you. So this book is a fictionalized account of the boy who became your father, Malcolm X. How did the idea of telling the story in this way come to you? Um, it just, it, w- it was just a given. Um, you know, when I read books and I'm reading about a particular character, um, I want to hear directly from the character. And so it just seemed, you know, just like it, it was a no-brainer to make it a first-person uh, story. So the idea came to you, like even the, side, the first person aside, to write about your father as a young boy. What, how, how did that idea come to you? Well, you know, I kept getting copies of books that were referencing my father's childhood and it was so it was so incorrect and <laughs> mm. you know I was compelled to, to make sure that I wrote a story that um, provided accurate information about his childhood you know in order uh, for any young man to grow up and become this iconic figure you have to have some uh, foundation, and many people thought that Malcolm went to jail as an older man and miraculously became Malcolm X, rather that he went to jail at a, at a young age, and it was the events that happened in his childhood that would eventually lead him, uh, you know, as a young adult, trying to find himself in pain. Um, from losing his father, from the the, the dismantling of his family, um, and sometimes finding uh, that you're not worthy of anything better, that would he, where he would ultimately uh, go to jail at a young age. And so I just wanted to make sure that I provided that kind of story, especially for young people um, who find themselves in challenges. Uh, and at least you can see uh, by uh, by Malcolm's life, he was able to go deep inside himself and 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 make good decisions um, as he became an adult. So tell us, how old was he when he went to jail? What was it for, and how did he change when he came out? He was twenty when he went to jail, and it was for petty theft and burglary. Mm-hmm. Well, petty theft, burglary—I guess it's the same thing. And um, it was him and uh, two girlfriends that they were dating white girlfriends at the time and uh, the girls got let off and they felt that their their um, sentencing was rather severe because you know they were two young African-American boys dating uh, white girls and um, so he went to jail and it was time for him to really sit down and reflect on his life, uh, being back in touch with his siblings who were in the Midwest, in Lansing, and who encouraged him to embrace 
this religion which reminded them much of the Garvey movement that, um, you know, the values that his parents had raised them on. And so he became a Muslim, and all of the uncertainties that he had in his life, um, that, you know, with his father being gone, but remembering the, the um, things that he had told him as a child, you can be anything, you're going to be a leader, you're going to mm-hmm. do these great things, black is great, black is beautiful. But, and now being in a place where he can say, okay, you know, he's learning about this new religion, which is encouraging um, pride in, in who he was and his, in his culture, uh, finding his identity, all of these things, and, and then being able to actually become a lawyer without going to, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, he said he wanted to be a lawyer when he was very young, uh, 12 years old. His uh, favorite teacher, Mr. Ostrowski, basically said, young man, you know, you are a Negro, and you cannot aspire to be a lawyer. You have to be realistic and, you know, do some something with your hands, carpentry. Um, and so, you know, all of these things really uh, seem to have had such a profound effect on Malcolm, as it would any young child, mm-hmm. and especially when your parents aren't there to guide you. And so it was. he was fortunate that, um, you know, being more enlightened about society, about history, that he was able to uh, internalize uh, all of the things that he had gone through to um, do something great. And I just wanted to remind listeners that this is a children's book. This is a book written for uh, uh children. I think I think the age said uh, five and up. Uh, or maybe it's a little bit older than that. Oh, gosh. Okay, so I wrote Malcolm Little, the boy who grew up to become Malcolm X just last year. That's the children's illustration book, which is actually really good. Yeah. And it that focuses on the absolute time that he was born up until he was about um, 12. And then the YA novel, which is uh, X, Right. that is from grade eight on up to college. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So how was it writing that, uh, keeping in mind the age of your potential readers? What were some of the things you wanted to bring out to a young reader, and how how was it that you approached it? Well, I really wanted to make sure that young readers could find themselves in Malcolm. Mm -hmm. You know, that no matter what challenge you have, or maybe you have no challenges, then if you have no challenges, maybe you'll be more compassionate. Um, um, Maybe you'll, you know, we want all young people to to believe that they're worthy of a quality education and that they're worthy of leadership, that they're worthy of making smart decisions, Um, that that we value uh, the decisions that they make. All of these things, um, I thought were important um, to connecting with the reader. Um, and I felt that there was lots of Malcolm that um, that they would find you know, that they would find that they had much in common with um, this young man, this boy, um, and that they too could go and do great things for society. 
So race and religion, obviously, are both very important to the story, and also they can be very tricky to write about, uh, especially when you're dealing with the predominantly white publishing industry, where I'm sure people had comments that weren't necessarily about where you were coming from. How did you handle all of that? What was your approach? Well, you know, I think we have to be realistic about history, and we have to be realistic about um, you know, the people who make up our country, and you know it's and so just including the the facts or historical facts in history um, you know we look at um, many of the um, young boys who have been killed, but yet we have who are happen to be african American, but yet we have all people you know, regardless of where they're from, who are standing up against uh, that and saying that all lives matter, black lives matter. And outside of being Malcolm's daughter, obviously, uh, what kind of research did you do? Oh, gosh. Um, My research uh, began such a long time ago when I wrote Growing Up Acts. Um, I got a chance to talk to many of my aunts and uncles who are now deceased, unfortunately, except for my eldest aunt, Hilda. She's still alive. And so listening to all these fantastic stories of their childhood, um, you know, how just all these really great stories about their childhood, and then speaking to a lot of people who uh, who were original members of the OAAU, which was the organization that my father had founded, um, speaking to family members, um, neighbors, you know, who were in uh, Lansing during the time that my grandmother was, my grandmother and my grandfather were there. Um, You know, it was really, it was exciting research, I have to say, and probably because he is my father. And just to be able to um, go along that young journey of his and see this this man that he would ultimately become. So, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more. You've already discussed a little bit about his childhood, but what was his uh, youth like? Oh, gosh. You know, I look at my childhood and I see the excitement, the camaraderie, the humor, you know, all of the fun that you have when you when you grow up with a lot of siblings, and my father had seven siblings wow. um, in his immediate family, right? And they lived on a farm, and their home was, from what I understand, they had this backyard area where all the kids would come and they would play Robin Hood. And, and remind us in, where this was. Uh, this was in uh, Lansing, Michigan. That's right. Yes, it was in the Midwest, and. You know, my grandfather purchased this land, and it was white reserved only, so it was this black family, but it was the white children that would still come. You know, at, at that time, you're, you, you're oblivious to racism, and so they would all come, and they would play, um, as one of my uncles would uh, said, um, what was that game? Robin Hood. And Malcolm would always be the leader. Mm. And um, everyone would follow after Malcolm. Whatever Malcolm said to do, everyone did it. So, you know, it was just just having fun, having all these siblings. Um, his father was a Garveyite, which was the Marcus Garvey movement. 
and uh, and a minister, and so he would go and speak to many black uh, communities and inspire them um, to their their own value. You know, it was up, up, you mighty race, you can accomplish what you will. To be independent, it was during the time of the Great Depression and the Jim Crow era that Malcolm's mother was a, love, a lover for education, and she made sure that she instilled these values into her children um, to be compassionate, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's um, insects or people, that it was important to have compassion for any breathing um, human being. So, you know, they grew up with really good values. And um, his mother was the uh, national recording secretary for this movement, which commanded millions of followers in the 1920s. And his father was the president of uh, the chapter um, in Milwaukee, and, and, and actually, there's a letter that's floating around the Internet um, where his father, Earl Little, as the president of the Milwaukee chapter of the Marcus Garvey movement, had written a letter to President Coolidge um, uh, when Marcus Garvey was arrested for the, the supposed uh, mail fraud, and he encouraged President Coolidge to release Marcus Garvey, and, and he c- compared it to, uh, you know, how you will be blessed by God and the, and the people, and you'll be remembered in history, and all these things. And when you read the letter, it sounds so much like the man who would become Malcolm X, and so you get to see that Malcolm came from this really dynamic um, beginnings. And, you know, once the KKK killed his father, and several years later, six or seven years later, um, his mother was um, taken to an institution and that the siblings were dismantled, you get to see, you know, all of the things that would happen to any young child who, who might not have the, the love and direction of his parents. And, and, you know, I had listened to something that uh, uh, Al Sharpton had said about his childhood, it's one thing to have your parents and, and, you know, the fine things in life. And when it's taken from you, you're, you're angry and you're in pain. It's one thing that this happens when you have, how did he put it? So, in so many words, if you've never had that, you are not going to be as angry. Right. Or I shouldn't say that you're not going to be as angry. You... He was enraged, but he identified young men that he could emulate. He decided he was going to be a reverend by looking at Reverend Ike, I think it was, and then it was James Brown with his hairstyle. And so, you know, for Malcolm, I, I, you know, thought about that. And you can see the different men who he came in contact with that he emulated. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Ilyasa Shabazz, who's the author of X, a novel, a retelling of the childhood years of Malcolm X for a young adult audience. So um, when you were doing all of this research, talking with your, your aunts and uncles and accumulating all of this wealth of anecdotes, how did you choose what to eventually include in the book? Because I'm sure you couldn't include everything. <laughs> um, I think the things that were uh, important, the things that were relevant to young people today, um, you know, we all start off as young, impressionable children, and it's the adults around us who will define who, whomever we become. And so I wanted to be responsible, and I wanted to um, have to provide an opportunity through my father's life, and, and, you know, it's historical fiction, so, you know, most of these um, events did, did occur, so, and I wanted to provide a storyline that young people could read and also could adapt to their own personal lives, and, and at the end of it, understand that, that it is the young people who will grow up and will become the leaders, the future leaders, and that we will rely on them and, and that they are aware that they must give something back to society. You know, and and picking one of the anecdotes you chose, and I think you had alluded to this to uh, earlier, um, there was one instance which we um, quoted in our uh, starred review of your book, um, where I think it was... Malcolm X's favorite teacher uh, had said to him, in here, I, something along the lines of paraphrasing, you're great, out there, you're just an N-word. Right. What, right. I, I, that must have been devastating to him to hear this from right. his favorite teacher. How did that resonate with him, and what actions of his came out of that? Well, what, what we see is that you know, it was already challenging enough that he lost his father, he lost his mother, um, he was no longer with his siblings. And to now be in another environment and, you know, you know, as he said, he thought his name was the N-word because that's what everybody called him, not, mm. not intentionally um, trying to hurt him, but, you know, that's just, you know, the way it was. And so... I would imagine that Mr. Ostrowski, you know, he said in the autobiography that that was his favorite teacher, it was his history teacher, and that when Mr. Ostrowski told, said that, it must have been a big punch in the stomach, you know, because it seemed shortly after that, Malcolm decided he wanted to go to Boston, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and and we see what happened when he went to Boston and then New York and you know he just kind of spiraled out of control, and I think it's it's this feeling of um, despair. You know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to help people, you feel that the sky's the limit. He's the president of his class. Why can't he be a lawyer? And for someone to just shoot him down, you know, I would imagine uh, for any young person that you know that's got to be pretty devastating. So uh, when you were putting this book together, you worked with Kekla Magoon, who's the author of How It Went Down. Tell us about that collaboration, um, how it came about, and how the two of you worked together. Yes. Kekla is so magnificent. I mean, she, she's, oh my gosh, she was such a joy to work with. Um, she's fast. 
she's insightful, she's extremely creative. And um, we got together, actually, you know, we looked at several collaborators, and um, I think once we came across Kekla, we just thought she was a godsend. And um, she, you know, she came to my home, we talked about the story, I wanted to make sure that this wasn't one of those stereotypical black stories, you know, mm-hmm. from the South, illiterate, you know, destitute, etc. And that we focused on the real um, foundation of my father. Um, and so we exchanged stories. I gave her so many of my um, lectures that I had done, um, so many writings, and she uh, reread the autobiography um, and, and my book, Growing Up X, and we just would, she would write, I would write, and we would go back and forth until finally um, we thought it was a finished product. And um, then with Andrea uh, Tampa at, uh, at uh, Candlewick, she reviewed it, and, you know, she had a, a, an excellent eye. And before you know it, we had the novel. <laughs> so how was writing this for teens uh, different from writing your memoir, Growing Up X, which was aimed at adults? Well, when I wrote Growing Up X, it was shortly after my mother passed away. And I really didn't think that there was much, I mean, what did I think that, that much about my life that would be um, interesting? And, um, but what I found, or I should say, I wanted to write about my childhood more about the, the values and the things that my mother did because, you know, she, I, you know, she passed away and it was one of my, um, most challenging times in my life, obviously. And, I wanted to give something back to her. When I took a step back and I looked at her life as just a woman, not my mother, and I looked at the things that she had uh, experienced and the person that she was in spite of all of the, the, the things that she experienced, she was kind, loving, just all of these really wonderful things. And I don't say it because she's my mother again. It was just looking at this woman and I felt that I wanted to share that. I had many young girls who I mentored because they didn't have uh, relationships with their mothers, and I realized that we are not all fortunate enough to have such relationships, and I wanted to share that. So writing that and then writing my father's, um, this book for my father, um, it could have been very similar because, you know, I've always... You know, it's just something that I feel I want to share. I want to inspire. I want to motivate. Um, I want to give love, you know, to children who might not necessarily have love. You know, I'm very fortunate that and my sisters, that my mother, you know, she over, she, she, she overgave. You know, she gave us so, she showered us with love. Um, Camille Cosby had written a testimonial from my Growing Up X book, and I really didn't understand what she meant at the time. But I came to understand what she meant was that, you know, Betty showered her children with love and that every child is not, um, does not have the opportunity to have a relationship with a parent who will give them so much love and attention. 
Um, tell us a little bit more about the mentoring work that you do. I'm curious about that. Um, let's see. Well, gosh, for as long as I can remember, um, I've always mentored in some way. And maybe I was emulating my mother because I think my mother, you know, did that. And, I mean, I could tell you a story about my mother. Um, she was a, um, her mother had her out of wedlock. And her mother was sent south, as many women, you know, during the, you know, the early days, 50s, 60s, etc., 40s, 30s, I should say, 20s, they were sent south if they got pregnant to have this baby, and then they would go back home. And so that happened to my mother. And when my mother became an adult, she founded um, YMED, Young Mothers Educational Development Program, which was for young girls, unwed, who would find themselves pregnant and rather be sent south and interrupt their education and, and likely never to graduate high school, let alone college. She founded this program so that they could go to school, and then the, the, the Mount Vernon Daycare Center, where they, once they had the babies, that they had a place where they would be taken care of while they were still going to school. And she was also, um, um, I believe, the chairperson of the Westchester Daycare Council. So it says so much about my mother, and having her as a role model, I did the same, you know. Not, I wouldn't compare myself to her, because I think she really, I mean, she just did so many, like, really great things. But having her as a role model, um, you know, at, when I was in high school, you know, I, I worked at uh, was a Division for Youth lockup facility. I didn't work there, but we would go there and we would mentor the students in math and, and so forth. So much that I thought I was going to be a math major when I went to college, and then when I started taking linear math, I said, oh, my gosh, this is definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> I made a mistake. I do not want to be a mathematician. But, um, you know, things like that. So I've always um, been being up, up in college, you know, working at, uh, what was it, division? It was, you know, whatever, DFY Division for Youth. Um, the Graham home was in uh, Dobbs Ferry during high school. So I've just always done something with mentoring young people. So on that front, um, I'm sure a lot of the kids who are reading your book are aspiring writers themselves. Um, do you have any advice, particularly for young writers of color, young marginalized writers growing up right now and, and how they might realize their dreams? Yes, I think that every child should write their biography, you know. And if you find, if you're passionate about publishing, then you pursue it, persevere all the way till the end until you actually accomplish your goal, your dream. Um, I think it is important um, to have diversity in a lot of books that we read. It's an opportunity for us to learn uh, about others, about other cultures, about other ethnicities, about different genders, you know, so many different things. And um, in order to have diversity, um, it means that we have to, um, you know, encourage those young writers to just really um, pursue their dreams and make sure that the stories are inclusive of all. I like what you said about every child should write his or her biography. I, I think that's that's I think a wonderful uh, piece of advice for them. Uh, yeah. it, it helps put their lives into context with others, and it, it forces them to be kind of 
made aware of what else is going on around them. That's so true. You know, when I did Growing Up X, I realized that my father, you know, he was assassinated when I was not quite three years old. And shortly after, my uncle came came to town, my father's eldest brother, Wilford, came to town, and we were at this place where my father's car was. And so as I got older, I, I realized that it was at the Malcolm X College. Mm. My father's car, his Oldsmobile, is still, you know, it's in the, it's there. And I remember just crying so hard when he was leaving. And what that told me was that, I, you know, even though I was so young when my father was killed, I still make the connection between my uncle and my father. I, you know, I was about five years old at the time. And, and so there are so many things that you can discover about yourself when you write your biography. And, it, and it's so important to know, especially when you then get into relationships, to know all there is to know about yourself before getting into a relationship. You know, so there's just so many benefits to writing your own biography whether you publish it or not you can give it to your children you know you can there's so many wonderful things that you can do with it so true so tell us what's next for you Ooh, what's next what's next is (laughs) (laughs) um you know i want to do this like women's liberation kind of book about my mother and, Mm -hmm. and many of the women from um the 60s and 70s so that's what's next for me. Well, you know, it, it, that is, I think, really interesting because um, people like your mother and women of that generation have often been overlooked, especially, I, I think, alongside such a powerful public man as your father. Yes, yes. And um, when my father was killed, we moved to uh, Mount Vernon, and it was... Bella Abzug, Congresswoman Bella Abzug and her husband, um, two Jewish, you know, Jewish couple, both attorneys, uh, they were doing a lot, they worked for the, in the civil rights movement as well, and they reached out to um, Juanita Poitier, who was Sidney mm. Poitier's wife, um, Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, it was a bunch of, of um, artists um, uh, in the 60s. And one, and they sold their house to my mother, beautiful home where we were raised. And they sold my their house, their home to my mother. It was a group of women, and um, sold it at a lower price because Bella Abzug was concerned about Betty. Mm. So there's such a story, you know, Bella Abzug, the women's movement, mm-hmm. um, sure. the women's liberation movement. So I mean, there's such a wonderful story about sisterhood, about being friends and, and, and that. And so I think, you know, another opportunity to talk about history and, and the importance of history. Well, that sounds amazing, and I can't wait to read it. Yay. <laughs> We've been talking with Ilyasa Shabazz, and you can find her book, X, a novel, in stores right now. Ilyasa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW President George Slowick talks about supporting free speech. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Joanne Bourne. I'm the author of Rogue Spy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week, we get insider info from Publisher's Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW President George Slowick is here to tell us about PW's efforts to support free speech following the attack on Charlie Hebdo. Hello, George. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us. I, I know it's kind of last minute, but this is such an important effort. We really wanted to get the scoop. So what's going on? What's PW doing? Uh, Publishers Weekly is putting uh, the full weight of its resources behind an effort uh, called Je suis Charlie, the, the normal moniker, but also nous sommes uh, to Charlie, which literally means we are all Charlie. And focusing on the, the need for free expression to, to exist throughout the world. This is a horrific and uh, recent events in, in Paris, but this goes on every day in many countries around the world. And there are voices attempted to be silenced in various places throughout the world with mm -hmm. the imprisonment of authors and the censorship of books. And it's fundamental to everything that Publishers Weekly does and to the industry that we're in. So tell us a little bit about the initiative. Uh, I, sh I should say, tell our listeners about the initiative. As, um, this has come about, I know this been, you've been thinking and discussing this for a little while, but it really came to a point yesterday, and uh, you got a lot uh, and uh, a lot of the staff on the digital got a lot going in a short amount of time. Tell us about that. Well, on a weekly, there's uh, deadlines uh, that are quite demanding, and we also have several daily products and uh, monthly products, and there's not much extra time, but the events stimulated such a concern and such a need to do something that uh, I was willing to upend all of our processes, uh, as you say, starting yesterday. I would say I've been had been mulling on it since the the attacks and thinking what can or should we do in a responsible way, uh, not wishing to put anybody at risk, but mm -hmm. wishing to help uh, the industry deal with the issue uh, and on an ongoing basis. So yesterday we put in place a full-scale electronic campaign to draw attention to Je suis Charlie and to uh, direct um, fundraising efforts towards various free expression associations around the world. Mm -hmm. Publishers Weekly is not a, it, while it is a domestic publication, its uh, interest is in global publishing. And uh, this is very much, of course, a global issue. Just as you saw 40 nations uh, represented in the march, uh, a very powerful image of uh, with a million and a half to three million, whatever number you go with, behind them, it, it seemed to me that it was very important to rally our industry. And there are a variety of initi initiatives going on. And since we report on the broad book publishing industry, uh, it was very important for us to be involved in it. One so, of the one of the visuals is the our cover art. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, as I said, I had been mulling over the notion of doing a cover and and, and a simple text cover with the the, the same line, "Just we Charlie or new some to Charlie." And uh, on Tuesday, our children's bookshelf ran a series of. Uh, images from various illustrators uh, in children's books. Mm. And the minute I saw this image, I thought, that's it. 
uh, and sent a note to our children's editor and said, you, do you think they would uh, work with us uh, and allow us to use the image? The image is from an illustrator named uh, Benjamin Shaw. He's, a, uh, as it turns out, a Paris-based illustrator mm. and uh, is well known for his Pomelo books. It's a series of children's books and, in fact, has a, a two newer books, uh, one of which is called Farewell Floppy uh, that we've just reviewed favorably, uh, published by Chronicle. And we called the, the publisher, and they were immediately enthusiastic and supportive of the idea. The big challenge, as we ripped up the layout of a, a weekly magazine, was that traditionally we have an advertiser on the cover. Mm -hmm. And we called uh, National Geo, which was the advertiser, and they immediately ceded the cover mm. to us and said we want to be a part of it. Wow. And uh, so now we're actually running two covers, one on the front and one on the back, uh, one of which will be Bernard Shaw's very simple, uh, very moving image it's he is a children's illustrator so it, mm. it's somewhat childlike right. it's a nondescript character holding a candle that's a, a pencil on the other end mm. uh, which i envision is leading people out of the dark and in fact leading a memorial um, candlelight vigil at the same time so it has evoked various visuals for me but when I saw it I thought oh that's just spot on and, and perfect. The only problem was it turned out that the illustrator was in Bologna judging an international uh, children's prize and was unreachable. <laughs> so we went into the, the, the midnight hours last night uh, not knowing whether we could even secure the image mm. while moving forward with the decision to do so. Right. Which had quite a few implications in terms of the ability to promote uh, what we're doing. Be what we are doing is we're donating the all of the costs of printing and paper and asking publishers to run tribute ads uh, with 100% of the revenue going to uh, four different free expression or free speech uh, organizations. And it, it's had a, a very quick response. But obviously, in a very short period of time, it's difficult for us to get to everyone, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. including the aforementioned illustrator. Uh, he did surface uh, on a train somewhere between Bologna and France. <laughs> <laughs> he happens to live in uh, Paris, as it turns out. A, a perfect coincidence. We had no idea of that. And was able to get to the high-resolution art which one needs to print from. Mm. So it was green-lighted in the early a.m. today, and we went on press today with the cover, mm. which pre-prints ahead of the rest of the issue. Right. Um, and you also, we also have a, uh, uh, I think you just mentioned a space in the uh, magazine itself, a, a kind of ad space with publishers who've contributed, listed. Uh, they're also able to take out ads of their own. Um, also online on our website, we've, it looks like we've changed, or at least we've changed the header, um, and we have a way for people to make donations there or to contribute or make themselves known there. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, but also tell us about the organizations uh, involved in this. Sure. Uh, you have until tomorrow at uh, 1 o'clock to still sign up and have your name in the 
uh, magazine. By, by which time this episode may not yet have aired. That's true. <laughs> it's never too late to make a donation. That, that's correct. In fact, um, we're concerned that, you know, this is just the people we can get to in a, a 48-hour effort that people will be upset that they weren't able to be included. Mm -hmm. So... At the bottom of the, the 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 way it will be laid out is there'll be full page tribute ads which are in black with uh, white reverse type of the publisher's name, uh, followed by uh, half pages and then a list of individuals who wish to contribute two hundred and fifty dollars to one of the four charities. They can write the check directly to the charity, or they can use the turnkey system we have set up on the website, which is publishersweekly.com/slash/jesuitcharlie, and uh, we'll put a, a message at the end of the list that, to say this is not the end of the list. This is the beginning of an effort. Right. Because for Publishers Weekly, it is the beginning of um, a deliberate commitment. We are, of course, intrinsically uh, supportive of all things free speech. But uh, now in every issue for the year uh, ahead of us, we'll be running a, an ad uh, pro bono for uh, any number of organizations that are related to free speech and free expression. And uh, they can queue up, and we've already had a, a couple contact us. Right. And then, as I mentioned, we have four charities involved from the beginning. And can you tell us about those charities so people know where they're... Certainly. Uh, the first is the American uh, Booksellers for uh, Freedom of Expression. Mm -hmm. They themselves have an initiative at the store level to uh, have signage for Je suis Charlie. And um, they are a, a stalwart of free expression um, support and issues. Then because of our international scope, uh, we have chosen to support International Pen, the author's organization. Mm -hmm. And they are actually the, currently where the, the banner ads, which are running on our website, right. in all of our social media, and on all nine of our newsletters in the head banner, uh, they click through to International Pen. It, very shortly, they'll click through to all to a donation page for any one of the four. The third is the uh, International um, Federation of Library Associations, who also has a very strong freedom of expression uh, effort. And the last is the International Publishers Association, which is an association of publishers' association. Uh, whose efforts I've watched with keen interest and have wanted to do something with for some time because they are constantly identifying issues uh, around the world where uh, journalists and writers and booksellers are being jailed for their efforts. Um, Zhu Zhao most recently in Beijing, uh, a Beijing-based publisher mm -hmm. who's in Hong Kong, excuse me, uh, was jailed for his uh, publishing efforts. Mm. Uh, and Publishing is always reflective of the world around it, and you see the world's politics, unfortunately, play out uh, in the efforts of publishers. Right. 
And that's particularly uh, been evident in all of the Je suis Charlie discussions. A lot of people have talked about racism in France and the racial and religious aspects of a lot of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons. It's wonderful to me to see an effort like this that really just focuses on free speech as an international issue, as a universal issue, uh, and, and in some ways sidesteps the questions of supporting Charlie Hebdo specifically and just gets more to the general concept that people should not be attacked for editorial cartoons for writing what they think. That's that's right. You know, uh, and also, as horrific as Paris was, and as stimulating as it may have been in terms of getting us to take action, uh, it is unfortunate that it takes that type of event to draw people's attention to an ongoing problem that exists every day around the world. For very many countries, this is a, a, a day-to-day part of their life, you know, with what's going on with Boko Haram in Nigeria and mm-hmm. other places. So one, one horrific event is not important, more important than others. And it, 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 but it does remind you of the importance of freedom of expression. And, you know, we're not perfect in the United States either. There are journalists constantly being jailed for not revealing their sources and uh, books being banned from libraries. And we have to be steadfast in our efforts to support that. And so this brought me back to our fundamental and intrinsic values. Uh, And it's not a, quote, First Amendment issue, because that's a uniquely American thing. Right. Mm -hmm. A bit jingoistic. It's really, a, as you say, a global issue and something that um, we need to be concerned about. And we also don't want this to turn into a backlash uh, against uh, Muslims. You know, there's already friction in various places, and we don't want that this to exacerbate that. The uh, Arab Publishers Association has actually made an announcement and come together uh, on their own effort to uh, disassociate from these events and also to support uh, free speech and the proper uh, display of one's religion, uh, which... It's it's perfectly uh, one's right to be very earnest about their beliefs, uh, but it's not appropriate to for the actions that occurred. I mean, that's with anything that's of a, a terror nature. Uh, it's the randomness and almost the uh, the inc- incomprehensible aspect of it that yes. makes terror work. But terror only works if you live in fear. And just as New York, I think, became far more vital a city uh, after 9-11, you know, I I think that very many people around the world will re-up in their belief that freedom of expression is a critical value that we all hold dear. Well, it's wonderful to see these efforts, and thank you very much for spearheading them and continuing to promote them. Maybe we'll have you back on in a year to talk about how that's gone. Well, thank you. Or sooner to talk about other initiatives. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, George. Thank you for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge. 
and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another superlative author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 